Smith, who is a British journalist, from the British magazine The Spectator, entitled The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors. Mm. <laughs> In it, not only does he give commentary on the moral fallout of notable pastors over the last decade, but he goes in even deeper by examining the very fabric and pattern of so-called Christians in the modern Western world as one who himself isn't a Christian or religious. By coining this phrase in the piece, quote-unquote, with a twist of Christianity. Here's a piece from this article. I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. Listen to this. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. We live in a time where there has become an increasing credibility gap between what we as a follower of Jesus believe and how we actually behave or what our faith tradition says, and the form we give to our lives. Our belief and our behavior. Our theology and our praxis. Our mind and our heart and our hands. And the greatest threat among us isn't Jesus or, but Jesus and. Or as Sixsmith refers to it, with a twist of Christianity. Some have called this religious bundling. A little bit of Jesus, a little bit of pop psychology, a little bit of consumer culture, a little bit of materialism, a little bit of nationalism, a little bit of progressive sex ethics, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, our faith journey in some regard looks more like a buffet that we pick as individuals based on what it is that we want. It's Jesus and, not Jesus or. That is the temptation in our time and in our era. Much of our life has been marked by vocalizing allegiance to Jesus while living as functional atheists. 
saying we believe, but living as though he doesn't even exist. If we are honest, the life script or the mental map by which we live out of into this world when getting down to brass tacks may actually look much more like, in the language of 1 John chapter 2, the way of the world rather than the way of Jesus. Or as Isaiah 35 puts it, the way of holiness. Often, due to our overcorrection of works-based salvation and the residue of the Protestant Reformation, we tend to forget that Jesus of Nazareth actually cares about behavior modification. Jesus has expectations. Do his expectations negate his love that's unconditional? No. He just says, if you want to follow me, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Jesus has expectations for how we live. Jesus does have a vision for our behavior. And Jesus does care about what we do. Not just the condition of your heart, but what actually comes out. Because as he said, it's not what goes in the mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of the heart and out of the mouth that defiles a person. Jesus wants to change your heart or the executive center of yourself, your will, your motivations, your inclinations, in order to change your life, which includes changing the way you think about the world and the way in which you live counter to the world. And counter to the disordered system that we inherit as human beings, as a product of the human condition. Peter says here in this passage of scripture that we are to be, as obedient children, holy in all that we do. Or as the New American Standard puts it, in all your behavior. If there is one thing I want to communicate today out of all the things we're going to walk through, it is that, yes, Jesus cares about your heart, but he also cares about your behavior. Because your behavior or your fruit reveals the condition of your heart or the tree. Some of us have behaviors in our life that need to be done away with. Not just in order to follow Jesus, but to experience life abundantly. And I'm praying this morning, the Lord has been speaking to me over the last couple of days for two things, reflection and conviction. That you would be poked and prodded a bit today. Of course, in love. All right? But keep in mind, a person that loves you, that doesn't care about what you do, actually doesn't love you. They're indifferent. They're neutral. And indifference is not love. To love someone is actually to point someone in a specific direction. And Jesus is always pointing people toward holiness. Always.
Notice, though, in the first Peter text that it says, therefore, which I've shared this before. It's important to always recognize when the text says, therefore, what comes before it. Because something has happened, because there is a cause, here is the effect. Here is the imperative, the indicative and the imperative. An event that happened, and now here is the command after. And here are just a couple of verses from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that provide for us the indicative. Okay? Peter says this, which keep in mind, again, the moral journey of Peter. The behavioral journey of Peter. And this is the one. He's the one saying, be holy in all that you do. Keep that in mind. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the Christology, the, the, the centrality of Jesus. In his great mercy, he has, what? Given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hallelujah. Praise be the name of Jesus. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Because of who Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, is, and what he has done, and what our future will be in the new creation, we live, act, and behave in such a way that reflects that story, that aim, that narrative, and that reality. We live out of that telos, that narrative. News that we receive forces our hand in how we live. News that we receive always forces our hand in how we live, depending on the magnitude, of course. It forces our hand in how we understand the world. News opens our eyes. If tomorrow it's 100% chance of rain and it's going to be about 35 degrees, let's just say, that's going to dictate what you do tomorrow and maybe what you wear tomorrow. It's going to dictate behavior. News impacts what we do. Our behavior changed after 9-11. Our experience in the airport changed after 9-11. Our behavior certainly has changed after the COVID-19 virus. After the iPhone was released, roughly 15 years ago or so, our behavior has changed because of that news. And after Jesus' resurrection and the news of it, our lives and our behaviors should change accordingly. In fact, if your behavior doesn't change as a result of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it is to live as though it never happened. It is to live as though it never happened. H. Richard Niebuhr was a, a theologian and an ethicist in the early and mid-20th century. And he spoke of the moral life not primarily as 
obedience to the law or to laws, or even striving for the good, but rather as foundationally a matter of response. Matter of response. Hence the idea of humans being responsible. Now, humanity is unique from the animal kingdom in that we can reflect and gain insight beyond instinct. We don't just react. We do sometimes, but we can respond. We can appraise. We can discern. We can reflect. We have freedom to choose directions. We are a responsible people. And holy living, here's where we start getting into to notes that you need to take, all right? Holy living is a response to the announcement of Jesus and his kingdom. It is an announcement of his rule and his reign, and we are to live in a response to it. That's what holy living is about. It is living in a response to the gospel, the announcement, the proclamation, the reality, the news that Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate and he has launched his kingdom project of renewal in this world and he sits above all rulers, authorities, powers, and governments and he is inaugurating renewal and redemption and restoration in this world by way of his spirit in order to move all of creation towards the consummation of all things and ultimate restoration, peace, rest, wholeness, and shalom. But do we live in response to that story? That's why we gather on Sunday morning. It's to remember that story, to be restoried, to be restored. So we live in response to that announcement. Now, the word behave is a very interesting word when you begin to break it down. Because it literally is be, have. In other words, to behave is to be what it is that you or I possess, be, have. It is to live based on what it is we possess. And Peter is saying we are to be and live in response to what it is we now possess, what he calls an eternal inheritance, a living hope, a new birth, a new genesis, a new life. Though your mortal body is wasting away, your spiritual self is being renewed day by day. And praise God, we're going to get a glorified body one day too. Hallelujah. Somebody said amen. Yes, God. Thank you. Thank you. We are receiving a living hope and an eternal inheritance. We possess it. So we behave because of what we possess. We have been given not just a new life, but a new story to live out of. Now, you know, I like some quotes. I like to read. I'm a little nerdy. Most of my references today are going to come from philosophers. So give me some grace in that. But the direction of our morning you will see why in just a bit, okay? So, just bear with me, all right? Alastair McIntyre was a philosopher in the early 20th century and wrote a famous book called After Virtue. 
all right? And he has this wonderful statement that I think helps us navigate moral choices and decisions and ethics as individuals. He says this, and keep in mind, uh, Alistair McIntyre was an agnostic or an atheist. The majority of his life did not convert to Christianity until he was about in his 60s or so. Um, But here's what he says. He says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself apart? That's not something to bypass quickly. That's something to wrestle with. The story that we believe dictates the choices that we make. So my question for us is, are you primarily living in response to the story of the disordered world or the story of Jesus? A.K.A., to kind of make it even more simple, are you living, living under the narrative, humans can do it on our own, or humans require God to make the way? It's pretty simple. Which story are you submitting to? Now, there's a lot of fluff and academia around both of those. But at the end of the day, humans can do it on our own. Or humans require God to make the way. You have to decide because your choices that you make reflect which story you believe to be true. And they also reflect who your teacher is, who your rabbi is. You all have a teacher. You all have a rabbi. Now, historically, this is where we begin to um, get in the weeds a bit. So buckle your seatbelt and let's ride. Historically, because here's the thing. If we don't have a macro understanding of our time, it's going to be hard for us to understand what it looks like to be um, transformed by the renewal of our mind and not be conformed to the patterns of this world. We have to know the patterns of the world. And a lot of us don't. We're just kind of floating along this this cultural current, as it were. Historically, the teacher has been God within civilization, within society, or at least a transcendent source. Even if not Christian, you can go to a primitive part of the world, and there's going to be some sort of transcendent reference point to dictate how the village operates and lives, historically. However that story began to change in the Western world around 400 years ago during the rise of the Enlightenment. More specifically, the Renaissance was also a part of this change. And the change accelerated even more so with the rise of secularism in the mid-21st century, post-World War II, specifically uh, in the 1960s. A lot shifted culturally in the 1960s for those of us who live in the Western world. We entered into what Charles Taylor, who was an Oxford philosopher, referred to as the age of authenticity. Where the dominant, here we go, the dominant moral authority was no longer external, but internal. The moral source shifted from God to the interior life rooted in a person's feelings, desires, and cravings. So we can kind of see where we've come from. And now you begin to understand, okay, I'm picking it up. I'm around people. I hear it. I see it on TikTok, YouTube videos, and the like. This idea of 
follow your heart, do what feels right, you know, trust your intuition, let your true self run free. These are all philosophical ideas that are unique to the rest of civilization and the history of being human. The human in this shift became, quote-unquote, finally liberated from all external forms of constraint, specifically religious restriction. A person could do whatever a person wanted to do. Unlimited freedom became the new God. And we operated under these various lay-level mantras rooted in this notion of follow your heart. Follow your gut. Let your true self run free. You can do whatever you want, but there is one caveat. This one caveat. Just don't harm anyone. This is, this is, this is baseline secular moral relativism at play. You can do whatever you want, just don't harm anyone. Anybody ever heard someone say that before? Do what you want to do, just don't harm anyone. Okay? You do you. Just don't get in anyone else's way. Sounds like the way into utopia, does it not? I mean, come on. It sounds like it. Unfortunately, if you look up the etymology of the word utopia, it actually means nowhere. Seriously, do some reading. Look it up. Unfortunately, uh, as good as it sounds, and it sounded, few people took the time to examine the possible implications and costs of such naive idealism and moral relativism. I told you, we're going to get into the weeds, so I'll let you know ahead of time. <laughs> Blaise Pascal was famous for saying, to think well is the essence of morality. Do you think or believe that we live in a time that thinks well? You snicker and you laugh because you know it's, it's a struggle. <laughs> you know why? We primarily think with our desires and our feelings rather than being able to depend on a community or to think rationally or to lean on tradition. You know what's interesting? I read a lot of... Um, secular thought, and there are people who right now are craving institutions because of the implication of some of this. Now, do institutions need to be reformed? 100%. But we actually crave some sort of discipline or structure as human beings. Otherwise, the weight of creating that is all on you. I heard someone the other day, a secular journalist for the Washington Post, argue that we need to return to taboos. I'm like, we've been here for 2,000 years, baby. Like, you know, right? It's just deeply fascinating. So let's try to think well about this narrative. Let's look at the pattern real quickly, okay? Are you guys tracking with me? All right. I'm preaching for transformation, not just for knowledge, okay? So, uh, and not just so you have more knowledge about the Bible, all right? Because that doesn't necessarily change how you live. But anyway, another sermon. Okay, so for one, we have to acknowledge that 
the freedom to discover yourself, quote unquote, separate from the community as an individual, to be able to do what you want rather than what you ought to do for the sake of the community is actually a privilege of the elite bourgeois, AKA, it is only possible for the few. This notion of be who you want to be sounds good unless you have responsibilities that force you to live a life that's day by day. It works for the elite. It doesn't work for the poor. It doesn't. You know, a lot of the critique right now in modern American politics is the elite don't know the poor. Go read about it. We'll throw money, but we don't actually get in the dirt often. It's a critique of modern American politics, both sides of the spectrum. This vision of be true to yourself, take time to find yourself, works well for primarily white elites. We're going there, man. We're going there today, okay? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been there, and you're frustrated. Some of you don't know because you haven't rubbed shoulders with the poor. Because in a, in a community that requires a level of responsibility to one another, you're focused on how to care for one another in order to get through the day. So that's the first critique. It only works for the few. The second is not getting in the way of someone else works well until you realize we all live together. We're like bumper cars, man. Looking at a wreck on the road is metaphor for actually how we integrate our lives as humans. We run into each other often. The third, not quote unquote harming anyone requires an objective agreed upon definition of good and evil or well-being. Just don't harm anyone. Okay, well, let's define what harm means. And guess what, friends? We haven't been able to come up with an agreed-upon definition since Genesis chapter 3. The very first evil, so to speak, in Genesis 3, the fall of humanity, was humans trying to define good and evil on our own terms. How did it work out? First thing was violence. I heard someone one time, it was in a, in a debate, a couple of philosophers, they're doing a Q&A. This, this guy walks up to the podium, he goes, I don't understand why you are so against moral relativism. Like, what do you have against it? I just don't think that we as humans would go out killing each other. And the, the philosopher steps up to the mic and he says, do you lock your door at night? There's mic drop right there, boom. More people have been murdered in the 20th century than the last 19 combined. We have to think well. Let's keep going. Number four, because we live together and are social creatures, every choice that we make, everything that we do, every moral act in some way impacts another person. The only time it doesn't make an impact is when you live in isolation in remote Canada, but even then your family might feel forgotten. You laugh, but this is the ideology of the age. It truly is. I'm just trying to hold it up to a microscope and just acknowledge some of the flaws. And here's the last one. This one's deeply important for us. 
That clock is staring at me like the devil. Wow. Okay. My dad's like, cut it short, man. Get it done. All right. Here we go. Here, this is so important. This is probably the most important. Human rights and moral relativism cannot coexist. AKA, justice and moral relativism are fundamentally, by term, incompatible. Do what you want and advocate for the rights of another. Do not operate together. There must be a standard, an objective standard of rightness. That is what justice is, to be just, to be fair, objectively. Otherwise, it's your opinion versus mine. And it can't be group consensus, because groups have consented on atrocities for thousands of years. Chattel slavery was a consensus decision. Look how that ended up. The greatest example of human trafficking in the history of the Western world but the group consented. It wasn't until we actually opened the scriptures and said, this is not the way. This is not the way. James K.A. Smith says, modernity can't have what it wants on its own terms. Just keep this in mind. Justice, which is, is a key mark of the virtuous life and the historic Christian tradition, cannot exist apart from righteousness. We have to have a standard for rightness. Because sometimes we don't get it right. We're a mixed bag. I'm a wreck on the inside. You know when someone says, like, man, I wish you could be in my brain right now. No, you don't. You really don't. The things that come through my mind, like, I need sanctification of the mind. Because I have two different aspects of myself pulling at each other constantly. That's why I need the spirit of God. It's just naive to think that we can accomplish something on our own. So maybe unlimited moral freedom actually produces a different kind of enslavement. A fish can have total freedom outside of water, but it won't live very long. The philosopher Howard Thurman says, freedom has meaning only with reference to limitations in some form. And what millennials and Gen Z, most of us in this room, don't always realize or remember is that a group of people tried this vision before in the 60s and 70s. Though we may romanticize the life of the hippie, we don't slow down long enough to inquire how it ended up. Nearly a million young people across the decade joined as many as 3,000 smaller communes during the 1960s and 1970s, populated by young idealists in search of an alternative lifestyle primarily under the notion of, quote-unquote, free love, which is an oxymoron, because love costs. Love is not free. In a New York Times article recounting the end of the hippie commune movement, here's what it said. Listen to this. There was a lot of trauma involved, and not just from chemicals. The movement opened a Pandora's box of the liberated self, and the trauma proceeded from the inability of people to deal with themselves. The Guardian did a feature entitled Free Love, Flower Power, and Fallouts, How Kids Cope with Communes. One kid who grew up in one of these communes said this, the free love movement set me up for a lifetime of sexual, emotional, and physical abuse. Another said the lack of boundaries in her home gave her, quote-unquote, an awful floating feeling. 
She goes on to say, I craved rituals and rules like my friends had. Fascinating. GQ then recently did a photo montage, which I think it's interesting that GQ did this, entitled The Last Glimpses of California's Vanishing Hippie Utopias. Check this picture out to show you what happened. What was Ring Around the Rosie, this beautiful picture of peace, love, and do whatever you want to do, turned into this on the right. It didn't last. It turned dilapidated and produced great harm. In fact, what came out of the hippie movement? The Jesus people. Hippies started meeting Jesus in the 1970s, and it turned into the most recent outpouring of the Spirit across the nation. Hippies burning vinyls at a bonfire, like radical stuff. Go read about the Jesus people. It's fascinating. This was the result of this pursuit of utopia, naivety. All this to say, feelings and desires matter. They they matter, but aimed at the wrong object and as the baseline of moral authority without boundaries, they produce moral chaos and disorder. One of the kids was quoted by saying that when you realize that there are no boundaries, you realize the world is quite scary. So back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. There's that futuristic vision. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires or cravings or lusts that you had when you lived in ignorance. Keep in mind, you may have those desires. You may have those cravings, but do not conform. No one is is arguing for suppression. What we are arguing for is suspension in order to experience the full consonant life. Suspended desire, not suppression. Recognize it's there. Bring it forth. But submit it to Christ Jesus and say, you got to help me get through this desire. Provide a way. I trust that you have a better vision to fulfill that desire because this is fleeting. You know, can I, can I get really real real quick? This is going to be like, just being very honest. There is a little saying in, in French around the word orgasm, and it is little death. Deeply interesting. Comes and goes. And we live in a hypersex society, which I'm going to get to that in just a second but I want us to be aware that there is a deep erotic desire for the good, not just for release. Because we are a sect people. We are sexed. We are split. That's what sex actually means. It means split. Seeking wholeness. And we assume another person can provide that in about five minutes or so. We are holding out for an activity that literally comes and goes that takes you here, and that fall is very hard. And it shifts when you become married, big time. Talk to a married person that's been married for 30 years. I'm just saying. Now, classically, there are four cardinal virtues or attitudes or dispositions that orient our actions or our behavior. Courage, justice, wisdom, and temperance. This is classic philosophy. 
not even Christian necessarily. St. Thomas Aquinas expounded on this, though, in the medieval period. So in an age defined by the pursuit of pleasure or hedonism and the elimination of restraints, in order for us to be counterformed in our behavior, I think, two of these must receive great attention and are seen in 1 Peter chapter 1. Wisdom, first and foremost, wisdom, which is the opposite of ignorance. Because he says, you used to live in ignorance. In other words, you used to live in such a way that lacked wisdom. And the second is temperance. A sober mind, a tempered mind, a tempered body, not conforming, self-control. So being holy in all we do, requires wisdom and temperance. And I want us to know that this life and this way of life is not looking for loopholes. But it is asking this question constantly. How should I act in light of my devotion to God and being different from the world? The idea of holy fundamentally is about difference, otherness, So how am I living in devotion to God? How does this act speak to my devotion to God? And how is it different from the world? It's not just about sin. It's about being distinct and different and unique. What is the wise decision? You have to ask. What is the better behavior? Not just am I doing sin or not, or can I get this close without crossing a line? It's asking what's the better decision? What's the wise decision? My mom always used to tell me when I would leave the house, make smart choices. Anybody had a mom like that? It's almost like they're leaving you their spirit while you're out. It's hovering over your mind and consciousness. Make smart choices. With that smile that's so passive aggressive. (laughs) On top of that, we have to be able to ask the question, is my life becoming more and more inclined to do the right thing? oriented toward holiness, because that's the goal, to move towards such a, in such a way that we are inclined to do the right thing. And I, again, I have an optimistic view of grace. At some point in your life, over time, moving towards maturity, that your heart can be bent towards Christ and what he offers you. You have not just been forgiven of sin. You've been given victory over sin. You can choose the better thing. And it's on you to do that. You have responsibility, you have agency and freedom, and you're empowered by the Spirit. But it's not just about forgiveness, it's about walking in freedom and victory. Because sin enslaves. And Jesus calls us to life. Where we begin to move towards not just leaning on the Lord, but we begin to lean toward the Lord. We don't just lean on Him, we lean toward Him. On top of that, we have to ask the question, where is there self-indulgence in my life that lacks temperance? Where do I lack self-control? Where do I lack a sense of restraint? Because the narrative is, if you feel it, do it. How does that normally work out? As a parent, I feel like slapping my little kids across the face a lot. (laughs) But if I don't exercise self-control, I will be in prison. I will be. If you ever had a, and and maybe maybe you've actually done this, um, you ever had the urge when you're in a store and you're like, man, what what, what would it be like to try to steal something right now? (laughs) You laugh, but you're like, 
seriously. There are moments where I'm like, you know what? I could easily snatch this candy right now. But if I didn't have some, some restraint or like maybe um, you forgot to pay at the grocery store or something like that or yeah, I don't know. And you're like, should I go back in or not? This wrestle inside of me. Was it a blessing or a curse? I don't know. <laughs> so you ask someone, should I go back in and pay? Or were they trying to bless me? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, you got to deal with God on that one. Right? We need restraint despite our feelings. But this is the narrative and it inevitably produces harm. Peter Craved, a philosopher at Boston College, says, Without temperance, we do not rise above the level of animals who live by their instincts, desires, and fears, especially the instinct to seek pleasure and flee pain. Now, we are beginning to see across society, even at a secular level, as I mentioned, where we are starting to question much of the implications of this social vision, this secular moral vision of society. One example is Ryan Holiday's New York Times best-selling series on Stoicism. Go read about the rise of Stoicism right now across the, the, the country. It's fascinating. Virtue and restraint. Now, I have some critiques of Stoicism because it eliminates this Holy Spirit. Hello. But there is this interest in constraint and wisdom. He's got books referred to uh, specifically this vision. One is called Discipline is Destiny. The other one is called Ego is the Enemy. He's not a believer. He's not Christian. Ego is the enemy? I'm like, we've been saying that about the carnal self for thousands of years. Or even, and I'm going to begin to close now, I promise. Even the negative and violent impact that the sexual revolution has had on, in particular, women and children. What was meant to be liberating has caused harm. If your body feels it, do it. Has produced great trauma for so many for decades. We have been living in a social experiment since the 60s, foreign to history. And it hasn't gone well. Uh, Louise Perry, who is a secular feminist, again, not Christian, not religious, wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Phenomenal book. Listen to what she says. We should prioritize virtue over desire. We should not assume that any given feelings we discover in our hearts or our loins ought to be acted upon. Secular, not Christian, British feminist who is liberal as they come by all standards saying we actually need to return to restraint and tradition. And she argues for monogamous marriage. She's like, even if it is an old technology and sometimes it fails, we need to use it because women are being harmed. And let me tell you something. If you're a, a woman out there right now, if you are sleeping with a man who isn't willing to put a ring on your finger, he is dominating you. He has control over you. He does. Physically, he's more than likely bigger than you are. He has no commitment financially. It's worth thinking about. She actually says, if, if you look at a man, this is for a woman because that's her position. If you look at a man and he would not make a good father, you need to get out of that ASAP, even if you don't even have kids. 
what? I'm like, that's as traditional as it comes, right? Like, oh, you're so traditional. Oh my gosh, you need to loosen up. It's 2023, baby. Yeah, and we're all miserable. Like, come on, man. Okay, so now the practical. We all got to get to Cracker Barrel. Okay. <laughs> we got to laugh a little bit. Um, two areas that historians have revealed that early followers of the way of Jesus were uniquely different from their pagan culture was money and sex. Money and sex. Go read Larry Hurtado. He's a Cambridge professor, historian, talks about this. The pagan world was stingy with their money and loose with their body. But the early followers of the way of Jesus were notated as individuals who were loose with their money and stingy with their body. Stingy. So, I'm going to say some things here in a second that's probably going to offend everyone in this room at some point. I think. Here we go. You ready? None of you are. Great. (laughs) For the staunch conservative, your money is not your own. Your capital is not yours to possess, but to steward for the sake of the common good, specifically for the poor. You have a level of privilege to utilize for the sake on the of those on the margins, to lift them up and to walk with them. Don't just throw money at the poor. Get to know the poor. Shane Claiborne is famous for saying, it's not the church doesn't care about the poor. It's that the church struggles to know the poor. The American dream is not the kingdom dream. Now, for the staunch liberal, your body is not your own. It was given to you. You were begotten. Behavior with the body without divine boundaries doesn't actually produce flourishing. And to acknowledge that we should, be, uh, we should have fidelity and actually we should embrace monogamous marriage is to embrace a standard that exists in the scriptures. There is design for flourishing in terms of our body and our behavior. But what's interesting, if you look into actual data, The conservative isn't as conservative with their body as you might think. And the liberal isn't as generous with their money as you might think. Do the research. For the conservative, righteousness without justice is incomplete. And for the liberal, justice without righteousness is incongruent. Holy living is to ride on a bike with both wheels moving in the same direction. And as the early church spread, one thing has been noted, that relatability and relevance doesn't actually spread the gospel, but rather distinctiveness and difference, because holiness is weirdly attractive, and you have been called to be a weird person, a different person, devoted to the path, the person, and the presence of Jesus and his purposes in the world. The more unique we are, the greater chance that people will join our movement. But if we continue to look like the world, it will eventually be eradicated in the Western Hemisphere. So, 
three questions and I'm done, I promise. One general question and two specific questions. Is the way that you live different from the pattern of the world? If so, how? Is the way in which you live and behave different from the pattern of the world? The second question, is what I do with my money holy? Is what I do with my money or resources holy? Is what I do with my time holy even? And then the third, is what I do with my body holy? Is what I do with my body holy? So here's my prayer as we come to the table. May the gap between belief and behavior close. And may we seek to be holy in all that we do.